We're just a couple weeks now before we end this series. We're going to continue in the series. As Wally mentioned to you, in, uh, in May, at the end of May, we're going to be starting this unceasing series. Let me take just a moment. I know everybody probably has plans to go to dinner and some things, so pastor, pastor's on, all right? So I will, I will be mindful that it would be helpful to get you out so you can celebrate the, the women in your life. Uh, but I want to make one quick little another announcement with the unceasing message. The Lord has done some things in me with regards to prayer. And when, when you can start outlining uh, messages and series and you get some download in an area, you know, at least for me, God's at work. And I honestly heard the voice of the Lord when he began to share with me saying, you know, everything else is almost meaningless unless you get the relationship part down. And a part of that relationship is communing with the Lord. And, and not only speaking to Him, but Him speaking to you. And all that happens through this conduit that we call prayer. And so we, we labeled the series Unceasing because the Bible actually says that we're to pray without ceasing. Now, I don't know if you've ever pondered that very much, but how do you pray without ceasing? What does that mean? And so we're going, we're going to spend the summer talking about prayer because I can tell you this, every move of God had at its component a prayer aspect. Every time God moves amongst his people, his people have been praying. Anytime you want to see God move in your life, it's going to be linked to whether or not you get down on your knees and you begin to pray. And I've come to the conclusion that prayer is not just for those moments that we're, we're facing or in the middle of disaster but that prayer needs to be a part of our life to where we delight to do it. Because right now, this is what I know. And again, we're, we're going to love everybody. We're not throwing any guilt or condemnation out at all. I'm just praying that the Spirit of God Himself will just drop on you like He's dropped on me. And I'm a pastor, and you would think, well, pastors are expected to pray. And honestly, I do pray. I pray over my food. I pray over meals. I, I pray when I get up in the morning. I pray as I travel. I feel like I pray probably as much as anybody and probably more than most. But there was something that dropped in me that said, you need to know what it means to pray without ceasing. And more than that, you need to get a revelation of it. And so my prayer has been that when we get to this series and as we move into the summer, and we're not going to do it every Friday, but just a couple Fridays through the summer. We'll be doing our Tuesdays, but then a couple Fridays that we're just going to step out and begin to seek God. Because I've known through the years that when you call prayer meeting, whenever you call prayer meeting, it just it doesn't become a priority. In fact, the prayer meetings that I've been through through the years, most of it, it's about 10 minutes of prayer. And there's probably about 20 minutes of worship and another 40 minutes of teaching. And that we, we call that prayer night. That seems almost oxymoronic that that could not be prayer night. But we're going to try to recapture and restore this value in the life of the church. I hope that that will stir in your heart. You're still to be on this journey. We'll continue to pray. But I'm just, I'm just feeling like the congregation, our congregation, and I believe the body of Christ in America especially, needs to get a hold of praying again. So can I hear the congregation give me a big amen to that one? Amen. We got to pray. All right. Let's do some teaching today. All right. We're still with the Inside Out series. As you know, this series has been uh, critical in my estimation because we're trying to better live our lives in the power of the inner man. In fact, your ultimate ability to prevail and to conquer in life depends on you living 
from the inner man. Uh, years ago, and some of you may have been there, I think I was taking a vacation in Georgia, and we were in Atlanta, and I went to the Georgia Aquarium. I don't know how the South Carolina Aquarium works, because I've never been there. <laughs> Bad on me. But I was at the Georgia Aquarium, and we were walking through, and we were doing the thing. Maybe some of you have been to Myrtle Beach, and what is that, the Ripley's Aquarium, I think it is? Uh, and maybe you've been to a very fancy, large aquarium. Interesting, as you go through this aquarium, obviously you can begin to see fish and all sort of water, wildlife. But there was one aspect that was really interesting in the Georgia Aquarium is you'd walk through this hallway and they built the aquarium to have this like glass tunnel. So you would walk through the tunnel, but the, but the fish, you know, would be swimming all around you, but it would give you the feeling that you were actually kind of in the aquarium with them. And, and so it was this kind of neat optical illusion that you could be standing there and this big old shark or barracuda or something could swim by you and you felt like you were right there without having to actually get in the water. Now, this isn't great revelation, but this is an important point I want to make to just get into your mind today. And that is, as human beings, we can't survive long in the water without artificial means, without oxygen, of somehow because we weren't meant for water and if the fish came out of the water into our environment they wouldn't last very long either would they so in other words that we have to figure out wh what our environment is and once we understand our environment we understand what it's going to take in order to live there to thrive there in order to function there now I tell you that story because most of us here today are as inept about spiritual things and, and, and accessing what we would call the spirit realm, we are as inept at accessing the spirit realm as human beings as a fish would be inept at accessing the natural, this natural realm, or as you and I might be inept as accessing that water realm. So just owning that point for just a moment will help us because if we understand that we're inept at this, and yet God asks us out of this inner man to access spiritual things. If we can get a handle on this, we can access resource that is of a divine nature that will be more than enough to help us prevail and conquer and find victory in life. So, let's see if I can get this. Ah, uh, well, Chris, guess what? You're just going to hear me like this. The key, the key to all of this is unlocking the supernatural resource. So I want to be sure that we can begin to understand the inner man and the outer man. If you have your Bibles or your technology, I'm not going to be able, obviously, to put it on the screen quite yet because my clicker does not want to happen. Oh, well. Ephesians 3.16. You remember Ephesians 3.16, folks? It says that he, meaning the Lord, would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit. Where? In the inner man. Then leaping to verse 20, it says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. So 
Paul is writing to the Ephesian church and he's telling them, he's saying that you need to be strengthened in here somehow, some way, in order that you can do that which is exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think. Now, it's interesting to me because as we've been going through this series now for several weeks, I was asked the question, Pastor, is the imagination, is your imagination a lot like having a dream or a vision? And my answer is yes, it is a lot like having a dream or a vision. Because your imagination is the place where you begin inside to see what it is that God might have as a possibility for you. In other words, when, when the Lord begins to paint a picture of the future, what His will is for your future, He begins to paint on the canvas of your imagination. It's interesting to me that the Bible tells us that when there's going to be an outpouring, and in Joel chapter 2, the Bible tells us that there is going to be an outpouring yet that remains, I believe, in the earth, in fact, the prophet Joel tells us in, in ancient terms, he says that the former rains and the latter rains are going to join together, and he's using this as imagery of the Holy Spirit. He says that the, the, the things that the Holy Spirit did years ago, as well as the things the Holy Spirit is wanting to do today, that this great outpouring is going to be joined together in order that there will be this incredible deluge of his Spirit upon the earth, which you and I may well be the generation who will participate in this great deluge of His Spirit. So much so that the Bible tells us these words. He says, your old men will dream dreams and your young men will have visions. That's what the Bible says. Now that leapt to me because this is what kind of in the filter of what I've been talking about in recent weeks has begun to speak to me. When the Spirit of God comes, what He does is a part of His ministry to us is that He will begin to ignite inside of all of us, whether you be young or old, He will ignite inside of you again your imagination. Dreams and visions are a part of the imagination. It's a part of how God begins to, to paint and picture in front of you things that you can begin to see because you can't get to where you're going unless you kind of see where you're headed and that's... That's the way the Lord uses you to get moving spiritually in those directions. This week, um, I was able to uh, join with my boys who got me tickets uh, to go to uh, the famous golf tournament, the TPC, down in Jacksonville, the Players' Championship. I don't know if any of you like golf. I do believe there will be golf in heaven. I believe there'll be lots of time for golf in heaven. I believe the best golf courses in the universe are going to be in heaven because it will be, it will be eternity. I mean, time will have no meaning, and therefore I can spend as much time as I want, Bishop, on every shot, lining it up. I don't have to worry about being pressed from behind or anything because I'll have all the time in the world. I... I, I'm beginning to love the game of golf again. I went to this TPC tournament, and you see the pros. I mean, anybody that was anybody was at the tournament. I mean, the biggest names were there, and I got to watch them all. Uh, what is it? Uh, 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 Jordan Spieth, uh, Tiger Woods, Phil Mickelson, Sergio Garcia. I got to see them all. Got to see him play Bubba Watson. Got to see him. 
I got to see Bubba get mad at the crowd. That was worth the ticket price, just going to see him get mad at the crowd. And, uh, and, and it was an amazing thing. And, and, and the interesting thing is I, is I got to go to the championship. I know this is crazy, and everything falls below Jesus. I love Jesus the most in my life. I know it will sound like I love golf the most, but, but everything falls below Jesus, all right? But I went to TPC, and there was something about going to that event that made me fall in love with this game again, just watching these guys do this thing. And the second thing was I realized how ineptly poor I am at it by watching the pros do this. I mean, if I can get to the middle 80s, I think I am really playing some great golf. But I'm here to tell you, you, these guys are incredible. What they can do with a stick and a golf ball. And the thing that's interesting to me, because I just sort of watched, you know, I kind of watched how they go through their motions, all their routine, all the things they do. And and for me, uh, watching golf if you're going to be really, really good at it, and I think, I think it, it has proven to be true through watching these pros do it, if, if you're going to be good at it, there's two things that you've really got to get a hold of. Number one is this. They spend an inordinate amount of time. Some of them, some of them are incredibly OCD at this point in imagining where that shot's going to go. You can see them. They'll stand behind the ball. They'll take their club. Even in the tee box, they'll take their club. They begin to imagine where that's going to land. They imagine if, the, if it's a second shot, they're imagining where that needs to hit in order to roll. They're imagining it in the hole. The, the game of golf, you have to understand, it's not just having the skills. You can have the skills and ability, but there's something. They get, they get zoned in this imagination thing, just imagining. And it was really amazing to me the amount of time that they lock in and focus. And hear me when I say this, how hard it is for them to do that because we're talking on Thursday, there were at least 30,000 people there. Could you imagine playing a game that takes laser-like focus and there's thousands and thousands of people standing around you making noise and taking photographs and all the things that have to happen and yet they, can, they zero in and don't allow all that stuff that's going on around them to phase them. Now that's the first thing. The second thing that I became convinced that if you're going to be good at that game is this. You cannot allow a bad shot to take you out of that hole. If you don't understand golf, just, just indulge me, all right? I've been your pastor for years, so I, I deserve at least one indulgement. Because I'm going to tell a golf story. I watched, I watched this as a pro. Excellent. I forget who it was. I, if I knew the name, I'd tell you. But long par five, he tees off. Made me feel really good because he, he hit the ball out of the tee box into the woods. I thought, yes, yes, I feel better about my game now. I mean, he was, he was in the woods. And I thought to myself, how in the world is he going to get out of the woods like that? And, and I'm telling you again, you know, they move the crowd. They put up the ropes. And, and he spent this inordinate amount of time walking out to the fairway, walking back into the woods, walking out to the fairway, walking back into the woods, pulling one club out, kind of looking it over, throwing the club back in, pulling another club out. I mean, all of this stuff. If it would have been me, I'd just go into the woods and I'm going, just pull me out something. I got to hit it back. I'll use my foot and I'll kick it back out there. That's how I play the game, but not these guys. And remarkably... I, could, I couldn't see how he could find a hole, but he hit that ball and he was able to thread it through that trees, though all those trees, 
Now, this is what was amazing, that he got it out, and it started bouncing on the fairway, but this was the crazy part. As it bounced, it went a little too far on the fairway, and then it dropped over into the water. So it fell in the water. So he had, he had to go back and, and give a drop and hit the ball. So he went back. Remember, started in the woods, hit it in the water, had to take a drop, hit it back. We're, at, we're on this crazy long 585-yard par 5. And anyway, long and the short of it is, that shot that he dropped out of the water, he hits that thing, and he drops the ball about this close from the pin. And it's like he pars the hole. And I'm going, that's not fair. Because if I would have done that, because listen to me, if I'd have been in the woods, number one, just to get out of the woods, I, I would have thought that's remarkable. And then to have gotten out of the woods and then to have dropped it in the water, I, won't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have said anything bad, but I'd have been on the brink. Why is that? Why is it for them it's different than for me? It's because for me, whenever I'm in adversity, now hear me when I'm saying this, and I'm talking about the game of golf right now. Whenever I find myself in adversity, the first thing adversity does to you is it, it distracts your mind and it takes you out of your focus. Isn't that true? You get in an adverse situation and the moment you're in an adverse situation, you forget everything you've ever been taught, every message you've ever heard, every teaching, all your discipleship. It goes out the window and you forget it all. All you know is you're in the woods and I don't know how to get out. That's what happens to me. I get in the woods and I'm there a lot. And I get mentally in trouble. I'm just thinking, this is what I'm thinking. I'm thinking, oh God, can I get this hole done so I can just get to the next hole and we can start over. That's how I'm thinking. Will this hole ever end? But that's not how they think. They may have adversity, but they don't think that way. Their mind is focused. If they get in trouble, this is what they say to themselves. This is never over. This hole is never over. Anything can happen. Woods, water, sand. I'm still going to par this hole. And amazingly, they do. And they never let that picture go. And it was just an illustration for me as I was walking around and enjoying my day. It was just an illustration to me about how we, on the other hand, face adversity in our life. We collapse. The moment we're in the woods, the moment we're in the sand, the moment it gets dropped in the water, the moment our circumstances change, the moment we have this adverse wind, the moment the relationship is a struggle, the moment the job isn't working out right, the moment the bills won't get paid, the adversity gets thrown at us and we mentally collapse at that particular moment. This is what we want to do. We want to say, get me out of this and just let me go to the next thing. And I think, we talked about it last time I was with you, I think God's saying, no, you need to patiently endure and press your way through and walk through this adversity because you don't know that what will happen will absolutely be amazing if you'll just press through. And a part of the pressing through is for us to remember that we're not to walk life out of our outer natural man, but we're, we're, we're learning to walk out of our inner man. And so today... And again, I almost feel lost when I can't use my clicker. But I figure Peter didn't have a clicker on the day of Pentecost, so he did all right. But I want to talk about the evaporation of imagination, all right? The evaporation of imagination. A couple passages I want to read to you in Ezekiel. 
This is a passage that uh, the bishop has uh, brought to our uh, uh, memory. And so we should know this. In Ezekiel chapter 37, you remember the dry bones, the vision that he received of the dry bones being the people of God. And I want you to listen in Ezekiel 37 because this picture that he gets of all of these dry bones that are in a cemetery that are strewn out in a valley. In Ezekiel 37, 11, it begins to speak to us uh, some precept here that I think is really, really important. Ezekiel 37, 11, it says, Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones, now these are the bones that aren't connected, they're, they're disheveled. He said, These bones are the whole house of Israel. And they indeed say our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you to the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, brought you up from your graves, and I'll put my spirit in you and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land, then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. And so this picture that I give you of the body of Christ being disconnected, strewn all over the place, not being able to become the picture that God had painted for them, which is this great army, was linked to the fact that their hope has been cut off. Or in other words, uh, their imagination or God's possibilities has evaporated. Isn't that what hope really is? It's when you can no longer see what God's doing. Isn't that when you become hopeless? What's God doing here? What's he up to? I don't see him moving. I don't feel him anymore. I don't hear him anymore. I can't see him anymore. It seems like he's distant. Doesn't God know my phone number? Doesn't he know my address? Where's God in all of this mess? I feel like I'm in a cemetery. I feel like I'm dry bones. Well, how did I get here? Well, it says in part because hope is lost. Your imagination or the picture you see, the hope you see for your future has evaporated, which makes Proverbs 13, 12 now more understandable. This is what Proverbs 13, 12 says. It says, hope deferred makes the heart what? Sick. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Now, I want to spend just a few moments that we have today, and I want to run down just two quick lists. And you can be grateful maybe now that my clicker isn't working. Because I want to, I'm going to take you through these lists of two lists. One is, how does your imagination get attacked? How, how does your hope how do you lose your hope? How does, how does this evaporation of this, this future, this preferable future that the Lord has for you, how does it go away? Has anybody but me ever felt like you've been, you know, you've been undercut, that, that circumstances have changed, and somehow you've lost your hope? I mean, I'm looking at you. Am I the only one talking to myself? Or have you ever lost hope here? Okay, there's a few of you that would be honest enough to say, yeah, I've, I've been there. I've lost my hope. Now, I'm going to identify things that cause hope to be evaporated. Now, I'm going to talk about these for just a moment. So when, if or when you enter these moments, you understand that part of the reason 
of, of that moment is there's an attack upon your hope system. So the first one that causes imaginations to evaporate is your environment. Your environment. It's interesting that the bones were in a valley. Ezekiel saw this picture of bones that were in the valley. How many of you know when that you're in a valley, hope gets attacked? I've already mentioned it. The bills pile up. Successive problems seem to happen at work or in life. Relationship bumps. Stressful situations. Sickness even. The environment attacks your senses because your senses is what's dominating your outer man. And so you see things, you hear things, you can touch things, you might smell or even taste things. And because it's your environment, it attacks your hope system. Because you're so used to, it's like a fish who's now in the water. You're so used to being in our natural environment that your natural environment ends up being what ultimately calls the shots in most of our lives. And so we have, we have challenging circumstances that come to our lives and all of a sudden we're ready to throw in the towel, we're ready to quit, we're ready to give up, we don't want anything to do with God, we're upset, we're mad, you know, we're in an uproar, whatever it is, not realizing that it's your environment that is causing your senses to make your outer man rise up and say, just lose it. These are the moments that you've got to capture something, and we'll get there in just a moment, capture something that says, no, I will not allow my senses to determine my feelings or even this outcome. That's coming out of my inner man. We'll get there in just a moment. But your environment, all of us have environmental issues. Some of us are in challenging home situations, challenging work situations, challenging school situations. All of us have environmental issues that are challenging, and the whole time we're in this environment called the world, you understand the world is challenging. But God hasn't called us to walk like we're just mere men in the world. So the environment is one of the ways, if we link to it too closely, that our imagination evaporates. Number two is this, disappointments. Disappointments. Have you ever been disappointed? You lost the promotion. The relationship fell apart. A promise wasn't kept. Somebody didn't keep their word. You were disappointed. Disappointments sometimes are small, sometimes they're massive. But disappointment is one of the ways that can be used in order to evaporate or to extinguish an imagination or a vision or a dream for the future you're disappointed i've heard people say this i've said this myself I've, I've i've been in places where i've even said to myself you know what it's better it's better just to not expect anything because then you're never disappointed if i don't expect anything of anybody then they don't have to measure up to anything and therefore i won't be disappointed if i'm not disappointed therefore i won't be hurt that's exactly the wrong way to think disappointments come but disappointments cannot be allowed to extinguish what God has. How many of you know that there is nobody in your life that can stop what God wants to do in your life? Do you believe that? 
There's absolutely no relationship, no person, nobody, no circumstance, nothing, nothing in the environment, nothing with regards to people can stop what God wants to do. If you think somebody can stop what God can do, then that person has now become bigger than your God, and you need to check and see who you're worshiping. All right, we're getting to good stuff now, aren't we? Number three is this, fatigue. Fatigue. What evaporates the imagination? Fatigue. When you are physically tired, you lose hope. I've often said, I think as a culture, I think work is a good thing. The Bible teaches that we're to work, we're to be diligent in our work. In fact, the Bible actually teaches that six days you shall work and on the seventh day you shall rest. So, so I understand that work is a kingdom value. But at the same time, uh, there are those that take work to the nth degree, and you work, you work far too much. Work and you can't connect with your spouse. You work and you can't connect with your family. You work and exhaust yourself, and then all of a sudden, you're fatigued, and when you're fatigued, you lose, you lose your hope. So fatigue. I'm going to move quickly. Number four is fear. Your fears. God says something to you, paints this incredible picture and, 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 and you say to yourself, well, that's great, but then there's no way I can do that. Well, okay, you're right. That's why you need him. But, but what happens is, is that fear enters in, and you say to yourself, if I actually attempt that or try to do that, that uh, things could go wrong. It could, it could actually be pulled out from under me, a rug. So there's fear. You know, fear, I write down here, fear is an acrostic of false evidence appearing real. I don't know if anybody's ever told you that. False evidence appearing real. In other words, your fears are usually that which have not come to pass yet, but you think shall come to pass. And God hath not given you a spirit of fear. But fear can evaporate your hope. Number five, I put down here the routine. The routine. I'm a little hot in the mic, Chris. Can we, can we bring that down? Routine. When life's just going through the motions, you cease to imagine. A routine has its advantages in as much as it's easy to plan your life, but a routine is oftentimes the box I put down here of mediocrity and convenience. I love routine. I'm kind of a person of routine. I have my routines that I go through, and, and sometimes we even develop routines for our children. Not bad. I had my grandson with me in the early part of the week, and believe me, he's a person of routine. In fact, you break the routine, you'll pay for it. And he'll remind you of it. This is how we do it. It's, it and it's, there's, there's an appropriate place for these things. But hear me when I say this, that if you live only in routine, dreams will begin to evaporate. Because the dream, the vision, the imagination is always out of the box. And something will break the routine. And so you've got to be prepared that your routine will probably be challenged in order for hope to come to pass. Number six, what evaporates the imagination? Wounds. If you've been hurt, you've met people like this. People that have been hurt and they're paralyzed. In fact... Those folks, all they can do is think about their emotional injury. And that's not to minimize your wounding. It's not to minimize what happened to you. Some people have faced some really significant trauma in their life. 
and, and great compassion goes out to you with regards to that trauma. But you cannot let your wounds and you cannot let your hurt paralyze you from your future. You cannot allow whatever happened in the past to determine what it is that may well yet await for you in positive possibility for the future. You've got to begin to move through those wounds, to be healed for those wounds, to, 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 to again eclipse those wounds. I've often told people, if you haven't been hurt, then you've not been, in, you've not been a human being long. Like I've had people before tell me, I don't want to go to church. Every time I go to church, you know, I get hurt. Well, I, you know, you don't have to come to church but about two weeks before you'll have a church story. I've pastored for 34 years. Honestly, I should have quit 33 years ago. If I let my wounds determine my future. You cannot let your wounds determine God's possibilities. And then finally, number seven, I, these are things that evaporate. Now, I'm telling you these evaporators for a reason. It's because some of you got to realize when this begins to happen or show up or begin to manifest in your life that they're, that they're showing up in order to evaporate your imagination, to steal your dream, to steal your hope. And you've got to say at that moment, stop, stop. And I'll give you the answers here in just a second. But the seventh one is bitterness. In fact, bitterness is closely related to unforgiveness. Bitterness, according to Scripture, is identified even as a root in your life. And if it's a root in your life, remember the root system begins to feed everything else in the tree or in the flower or whatever it may be. So if there is a root of bitterness or unforgiveness in your life, it will begin to feed other aspects of your life. And what it does is it will begin to mess up the way you think. Instead of thinking about what could happen and what God has for you and His plans and His future and His possibilities and doing the impossible, you think about everything that was done wrong and the justice and the revenge and all the other things that need to happen and you begin to get myopic in the rearview mirror instead of looking out the front window as to what God can do. And so bitterness will mess up the imagination. So the question finally arises in our last few moments I have with you this morning is, is, well, how do I get my hope back and how do I get my imagination back and how do I maintain my imagination and how do I stop this evaporation from taking place because maybe there are some of you here today, maybe your environment, maybe you have an environmental issue, maybe you've been disappointed, maybe you've been wounded, Maybe you would say, I, I, I don't share this with many people, but honestly, Pastor, I'm bitter inside of here. Maybe there's fears. I don't know. Maybe any of these things you would say to yourself today, well, I, I, I may be, I actually may be there. Maybe that's why it's hard for me to dream again. You need to just tune in and listen. There's just a couple things here that if, that if you'll do this, I think you'll begin to see progress and you'll begin to get your hope back. I like to use acrostics, and I'm going to use another acrostic. I'm going to use the acrostic faith. F-A-I-T-H, faith. Faith is the key. You know, the Bible says that we walk by faith, not by what? We walk by faith, not by what you see. You know, the opposite, the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is sight. When you're out of faith, 
It's when you're walking by what you see. I'm talking about your natural eyes. I know many, many people who say they love the Lord and, and they'll say they believe God and they'll say all the right words and yet a lot of times they're out of faith. And why is it? It's because, it's because they've allowed their senses, their sight in particular, that what they see is beginning to, uh, to direct or dictate what it is that they're ultimately believing for. And I'm telling you, if you allow what you see to determine what goes on inside of you, you're going to be in a train wreck. We walk by faith, not by sight. Listen to this, 1 John 5, 4. 1 John 5, 4. For whatever is born of God... How many of you are born again? I'm born again. Now this will get ready. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. So you want to know how you get your hope back. You want to know how you press through. You got to begin to understand some principles of faith. Now, now we could talk about faith for the rest of the year too, but I got to give you just a few quick things in the moment we have time together. And we're going to do this by an acrostic. And I do this by acrostic because hopefully for some of you, you'll hear these words and they'll, they'll stick in your mind. So when you're in a cruddy, stinky environment, you'll say to yourself, faith, what must I do? F-A-I-T-H. And all of a sudden it'll kick in and you'll press through. You'll overcome like the scripture says. The first one is this, F. In fact, you could put two words here, either one. You put the one that most applies to you, one of these two. Either fight or forgive. Fight or forgive. I'll start with the second one, forgive. We need to learn to forgive. Keep accounts short. People will do you wrong. They do need to apologize. You'll probably never get one. Let the monkey go. Forgive. It does you more harm than you holding on to it thinking you're doing them some harm. Have you ever noticed that those who offend or some injustice or some other slight that comes to you that you hold on to, it does you more harm than it does them. They just go on with life. And you sit there in your stew. Let it go. Faith is linked to forgiveness. Listen, I could line up offenses... And I was telling Trace the other day, because I had to go up and down the road to hand my grandson off to his parents. And uh, so I was spending a lot of time on the road early in the week. And I just don't listen to the radio. I just don't do that. But it was probably a mistake because my mind started slipping into areas it didn't need to go to. And all of a sudden I started thinking about some things from years ago. And I was, I was starting to run the tape again. Until finally there was a moment in there, I literally did this in the car as I'm going down the road. I, I, I literally went like this, and I said out loud, stop it. I'm glad I was by myself. I said, stop it. Let it go. Forgive again. Seventy times seven. That's why it's in the Bible. How many times have I got to forgive? Seventy times seven. Every day, seventy times seven. That's what the Bible says. The reason it's in there is because Jesus knew the tape that was playing in everybody's brain. 
You mean again, yes, again, and again, and again, and again, until it just never comes up again. We've got to forgive or it will evaporate the picture, your imagination, because what happens is you begin to imagine that past scenario is what you're imagining over and over and over again. The second one is fight, which maybe kind of links in this situation, is because you've got to rise up and not allow your brain, your mind to take you places that it ought not go. When was the last time you actually fought an emotion instead of ran with it? When was the last time you felt an emotion coming up in you and instead of just yielding to it automatically, because that's what people do, they're just going with their feelings. This is, this is just, I'm just going with it. When was the last time you fought it and you said, no, that doesn't have to take place in this situation. I can maintain my peace. I can maintain my focus. I can maintain my joy. I can maintain everything I need because I'm going to fight it because I'm not going to let anger win. I'm not going to let uh, the discouragement win. I'm not going to let uh, whatever it is win. I'm going to fight it. That's what it looks like when we fight the good fight of what? Faith. You rise up and you fight some things and say, no, it's not what I feel and it's not what I see. It's what God has said. It is what he has painted. And that is what I see by the inner man. And I refuse to yield to these eyeballs. Is that hard? Sure it is. It's why it's a fight. But we can do that. That's his grace is sufficient for us. All right. That's one fight. Number two is assemble. I got to hurry. What do I mean assemble? A, assemble. It means, it means, yeah, how you keep your hope alive? You hang around other people that are keeping their hope alive and we assemble. The Bible says, Hebrews 10.25 tells us that we're not to forsake the assembly of ourselves together, which is the habit of some. But then he says, all the more, as we see the day appearing, to mutually exhort and to encourage one another. The reason we come to the house of God is because this morning, whether you really like the sermon or not, doesn't matter. I'm here exhorting you by saying to you, you've got a future. There is reason to hope. Don't let it go. If you weren't here, you wouldn't have heard it. Isn't that revelational? This is what I talk about. Connect the dots. Assemble. I, F-A-I, initiate. What must I do to start this direction? Listen, if God is God, you, you, don't, you don't have to do everything instantly, but, but you can initiate things that God has spoke to you about. Listen, that God has spoke things to me that I don't have the money for, I don't have the time for. Uh, I don't know how it's going to get done. I know I'm going to have to meet somebody in order to accomplish some of these things that he's painted for me. And, and so I can go down the list of all the reasons that right now what's painted can't happen. But hear me when I say this. There are other things within that framework that I can step into and initiate. I just got to figure out what that is and I got to start doing it. I don't know what that may mean for you. But if you hate your job, it's a dead end job. You know, God has another career, another job for you. But you don't know how it's going to happen. You can't quit the job you're at. And, and you can go down the list of all the reasons why you think it can't happen. Well, maybe a simple reason would be, why don't you sit down and fill, just write your new resume out? Maybe that's the first thing you need to do. Have you ever thought of that? Initiate something. Do something that begins to move you in the direction of that picture. It doesn't have to be major. 
It can be just a little baby step. But you just do that baby step and you keep moving. And, and let me tell you, the hope, the hope is maintained, initiate. Number one, four, letter T, F-A-I-T, thanks, thanks. Are you a grateful person? Are you a thankful person? Give God thanks. Thank him. Thank him for the vision. Thank him for the, the picture. Thank him. Be, a, be of a grateful heart for all the good things that are going on in your life. Thank him. Thank him that God's word will come to pass. Thank him that where God guides, he provides. Thank him. Just begin to thank him. Be a grateful, grateful person. And then lastly, I put down here, I, I, I put happy or maybe even healthy. Maybe that would be another. Maybe that's a two two word happy or healthy and that is learn to maintain your joy and be sure you're taking care of yourself because if you're i don't know everybody here i suppose at some time or another has had a flu or a bad cold or a stomach virus have you ever i mean have you ever had a stomach virus and i don't get them often but it's bad news if i get a stomach virus it is way bad news and i, I and, and I, this is indelicate but i don't care Oh, did we get it up there? Oh, thank you. How long has it been up there? Man, I've been in the zone, man. I didn't even know you got it up there. Well, thank you, Chris. I appreciate. I do. I sincerely appreciate that. Let's let's get back to stomach viruses. I don't know how it works with you, but whenever I get a stomach virus, and it's not often, and you know how it is, you're you're kneeling at the porcelain altar. And it's like you're getting sick, and I, it's like I, I, I've said this. I said, Jesus, if you're going to take me, just take me. Just don't torture me. Take me, because it's just the worst in the world. I've often said that the worst feeling in the world is not getting sick. The worst feeling in the world is 30 seconds before you get sick. That's the worst feeling in the world. And usually the best feeling in the world is about 30 seconds after you get sick. You didn't know you could come to church today and hear me evaluate stomach viruses. <laughs> but when you're, when you're, when you're sick, do you, do you understand at that moment, when you're sick, you're, you're, you're not healthy at the moment, and you're just going, God, take me. Take me now. Kill me. I don't care. That's why, that's why, do you realize why healing is in the atonement, why we believe in a God that heals is because his healing brings you back to the place that you can hope again for his purposes. There's purpose in the healing. And so we need to do what we can do to maintain our health. Come on, if you're not getting your sleep, get to bed on time. If you're living life burning 50 candles, maybe you need to extinguish about half of them. There are things that we need to do by just way of how we live our life that can begin to bring hope back into the equation again. But along with that H of health, we need to get our joy back. The Bible says, this is what Jesus says, my joy I give to you that no man can take away. Which means this, nobody can steal my joy. Nobody can take it away. I can get a phone call, somebody can blast me out, but the only way I lose my joy is if I hand it to that guy who's on the phone. Other than that, nobody can take it away. My joy remains. 
And if you'll stay a joyful, happy person, happy people see miracles. Happy people achieve destinies. Joyful people move into next season. You, we got to get our joy back again. We got to get our smiles back again. You remember back during the Jesus movement, I remember 30, 40 years ago, that you'd get born again during that era and people would look and they'd say, what are you smiling about? I'm, I found Jesus. Well, and they wouldn't understand it. This cranky old guy all of a sudden is this joyful, lighthearted person. Why? Because joy came into his life and that joy remains there not because of what you're going through but because of the picture that's painted inside it's amazing even the guys in prison who got in prison because of their rebellion and lawlessness when they make a commitment to the lord they begin to find their joy even in prison we have to find our joy and you get your joy and your imagination won't evaporate You'll know God's up to something. I'm going to finish with this and I'm done. You remember, I told this story before, but I love this story about the dad who had two sons and one was the eternal optimist and one was the eternal pessimist. And both of them were sort of kind of, they were, they were, they, he thought they went too far in these two directions. He thought the pessimist was way too pessimistic and the optimist was way too optimistic so he decided he was going to train him and fix him and teach him a lesson and it may have been christmas i think it was christmas and and so he put these two packages under the tree one for the pessimist and and one for the optimist and in the in the uh, pessimist's uh, package he had put a card to go look in the garage where he had where he had purchased the best bicycle he could get for his son the pessimist and then in the optimist one, in order to get him, you know, not to be so optimistic, he, he, just, he just put horse manure in there. Yeah, it's because he's going to teach him a lesson. So Christmas morning comes. The pessimist comes running out, and he looks at his package, and, he go, and you can just hear, oh, what's this going to be? It's probably nothing I'm really going to want. And, you know, and he's just doing the whole thing, and he opens up, he sees the card, tells him to go to the garage. He goes into the garage. And he sees the bicycle. And he goes, oh, it's a bike. You know, bikes, it's going to take maintenance. I've got to oil the chain, and it'll probably get a flat tire when I go start riding it. And then I'll have to fix the tire and buy a new inner tube. And everything he was saying, he's just being pessimistic about this new bike. His other son, the optimist, opens up the package, and it's full of manure. And all of a sudden, he springs up, and he goes, woohoo! And he starts running around the house like a crazy kid, just going, woohoo, woohoo, woohoo. And the dad finally stops him. And he says, what is wrong with you? There was manure in your package. He says, yeah, I know. There's got to be a horse around here somewhere. <laughs> I love that joke. Has life thrown you poo-poo? You got a great horse coming. Exactly. Keep your joy. Don't allow anything to evaporate your imagination, man. God's got a good plan. Amen? Amen. Stand with me.